Folks, good evening, and can I add my welcome to Dan's welcome earlier as you join with us this evening. As we come to look at Romans 13, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, for this moment we withdraw from what is our normal lives. We take time to to stop. We take time to think. We take time to meet you. And so we ask that you will be near us, that you will be teaching us, and you will be leading us in your ways. Speak clearly to us. Continue to change us into the ways of Christ, your ways, so that we may be your examples and your people in this world. Help us, Lord Jesus. Amen. So after a few weeks off, we're back in Romans, uh, Romans 13. And if you've been with us, you will know that it's been since September that we've been looking uh, through Romans, the first 12 chapters, looking at Paul's argument of the reason for Christ and why faith in Christ is important and is the only way. He finished that at the end of chapter 11. And from chapter 12, we've been looking at what this practically means. So Paul has dealt with the theology, he's dealt with uh, the progression of his thinking, and now he's looking at it practically. Well, how do we live this? How do we put this into practice uh, in the world in which we live? And so tonight we'll look at the whole of chapter 13, and we'll look at it in two parts. The first part will deal with our interaction and consideration of leaders and authorities, and the second uh, we'll glance again at what it means to love but this time love in the viewpoint of how a Christian acts in this world. So the first part, looking at leaders and authorities. Have you got your little card and your identification? Are you ready to toddle off to the polling station come Thursday and do what we do in our democratic society and vote? It's one of the privileges that we have in our society. We get, once every four or five years, the opportunity to say who we want to govern us. Now, of course, in Northern Ireland, the political system that we have doesn't necessarily mean that we get a government, that we get a coalition or a grouping of parties together. But we have this privilege of putting an X on a piece of paper. And that X means a lot. It means that we are fully behind the candidate whom we desire to vote or to rule us as we vote for them, to govern us, to be part of the establishments that we have. It's also an opportunity for us to not vote for perhaps who we voted for the last time. It's our opportunity to give them their assessment of how they've done in the past four years. So on Thursday, our country will vote, and we'll get the government that we vote for. But have you ever looked beyond the voting paper? Beyond that little slip and that list of names, whether it be for the assembly elections or the council elections that will come up on Thursday or the Westminster elections that we've had recently, have you looked beyond the voting paper and looked to what God's Word says? I'm sure we've come across Romans 13 before, uh, verses 1 to 7, and we've looked at it, read it, and thought, that's good. We've given it a casual glance and we've passed on. But if we ever stop to look and understand what these verses say to us about leaders and authorities, to look at these verses and to understand them in the context of today gives us understanding when it comes to viewing our leaders 
and also how we treat our leaders. So Paul pulls out a few things for us to consider. The first thing is that we are to submit to the governing authorities. And right at the very start, he makes it clear that it is everyone is to submit. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. It's not just those who are politically active, knowing what's going on, nor is it for those who are uneducated. Everyone, no matter who we are, whatever our position in society, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now we must pause for a moment and understand this because we can think in history and we can think of Hitler, Stalin, Amin, and we can think of other governments that have not done the best for their people. And we can ask the question, surely not that God put them in place. Notice that God is talking about authority and not necessarily leadership. He has given authority for people to rule. He has given them the right to rule. He has given them a guideline by which they rule. The individual who is the leader, well, they make up their own mind. But God's way for running a country, God's way for for organizing society, God's way for his people is one that should be adopted by us as we've been looking at in the Ten Commandments in our morning services, but also by the authorities that rule over us. So when we submit to our rulers, we are submitting to God and the purposes that he has entrusted to them. And in Northern Ireland, that has always been a difficult thing. For centuries, there has been this level of distrust between political parties, between social groups. But scripture is clear. We are to submit to those who are in authority over us because that authority is established by God. What if we don't submit? Well, Paul says the one who does not submit is a rebel. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. In many communities, a rebel can be seen as a hero, one who stands up against the injustices of many. And we've seen this over recent months as we've seen the sweep of um, uprisings across the Arab world, Tunisia. Egypt, what's happening in Libya and Bahrain. But those who have come to the front of these activities are called rebels by the state and the supporters of the state, but heroes by the people who support their cause. Paul says anyone who goes against the authority is a rebel. And not just against the authorities, but against God. As we've said already, in our thinking in the morning services, thinking our way through the Ten Commandments, God has a way of life for us. God has given us through his word what life looks like for one who follows his son Jesus. And not only has he given it to us, but he's given it to the world as a way in which they can live and also access God. God requires our authorities to to follow that way just as we are to. And that then puts pressure on us, the people who elect our leaders. 
Whenever we go into the voting booth, are we just going and going with what we traditionally do? Or are we actually understanding what each one stands for? What about the issues that we often debate? What about abortion? What about poverty? What about the health service? What about education? Where do our politicians stand? We have been given something by God. Our thinking, our conscience. Allowing us to put our X on a piece of paper that allows us to elect the authorities given by God to rule us, to guide us, and to lead us. We are to submit to our authorities, whether we like it or not. We are to respect them, because God is the one who gives them that authority. We are not to rebel, because whenever someone rebels, we have to go to what we've been talking about over the past number of months, and indeed throughout Romans, the heart issue. What causes someone to rebel? Most likely, they're looking for a new way of life. They think they can do better than the one who's in power. So, they want the power. They want the wealth. And even though they may start off, start off genuinely enough, it ends up that they too get sucked in by this power and this wealth and this authority to use for their own ways and their own means. But it can also be the reverse it can also be the case where the government puts down its people. I don't know if you are aware, but Romans 13 was the verse used by the apartheid regime in South Africa to justify the apartheid system. That system that segregated black from white. And even within the white communities, the segregation between the Afrikaners and the British. They used scripture, this very passage, to say this is the way that God has it for our country. This is the way he tells us to live. The South African government to remain in power and to have its control had to bring in these laws rather than thinking of what was the good for all the people under their care. So a government can abuse its authority. A government can misuse what is given to it by God. In these cases, I certainly believe this is when we can stand up and say this is wrong and within our system we can do so. But ultimately, Scripture tells us our authorities have that authority by God and we must submit to that. Paul also tells his readers that they are to obey the law. We've thought a lot about this in the mornings. We've thought about what it means to have the law in the Ten Commandments. Paul says that we cannot act in any ways that would break the laws that are here with us. He goes on to say that the one in true authority is a servant of God, an agent of wrath. And Paul states that if you do wrong, you will be punished. And if you do what is right, you will be commended. Of course, the leader is required to live in the law that God has revealed to them. So the law is there for us given under the authority of rulers so that we can follow it, that we can remain in this society, that it can be a society by which we follow the civil rule. And to follow on from this, Paul goes on to address a citizen's responsibility, the responsibility that they have to the state, that is to pay taxes and revenue, to give respect and honour. 
And we can make all the jokes in the world about taxes and revenues and everything like that. But Paul makes it a serious point for us. He sees it as an essential part of what a disciple does. It's an essential part of the disciple's life to pay taxes. Not to pay taxes is to rob the state. To rob the authorities of resources that can pay for the needs of society. For both the rich and the poor. So let's move this into 2011 and assess our own dealings with taxes. How do we respond to the government's demands for a percentage of what we earn, or our investments, or our savings? Do we begrudge paying taxes? Or do we recognize it as not just part of our social living, but also part of what is expected from you and from me as a disciple of Jesus Christ? In many times in Jesus' life, the Pharisees got together and they tried to trick him and trap him. They wanted to find a way that would put Jesus to one side, take him out of the picture of the support that he was getting from his people to to quash what they saw as this uprising. And in one instance, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus a question. They ask the question about paying taxes, the imperial tax, that what was due to Caesar. And Jesus gives them the answer, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, Matthew 25 and verse 21. The Pharisees, of course, were asking this fully loaded political question. They wanted to trick Jesus so that not only would he lose religious support, but also political support. The people hated the authorities of Rome. They hated being under this pressure from Rome and under Rome's authority. So for Jesus to turn around and say, of course pay your taxes, The Pharisees' thinking was that this would put Jesus down. It would make him unpopular with the crowds. But Jesus makes it clear. He asks for the coin. And he asks whose head's on it. And they reply with the fact that it is Caesar's. And Jesus says clearly, Pay to Caesar. Give back to him what is his. And to God what is God's. Jesus knows, as we all do, It takes money to run a country. Part of that is taxes. There is no room in our lives for trying to get out of paying taxes and whatever revenue is due the state. We think in the short run that it does us good. But as we thought this morning in looking at the first of the idols that we're looking at, the idol of money. Money does not bring us happiness or anything. So to try and get out of paying our taxes... We're letting in that subtle, subtle idol of money. Letting it take over our lives and our thinking. When we try to pay as little as possible, or when we try to dodge paying tax, we are making a fool of God and of his people. If God tells us to pay to the state what is due to the state, and we decide otherwise... We are going against what God desires his people to do. And not just money, but also in respect and in honor. And here's one of the challenges that the Christian church, that of the reformed Protestant vein, is going to have to face if the opinion polls are right and what the next election will bring. Christians in Northern Ireland are going to find it tough if they have to accept Respect and honour a first minister from the party of Sinn Féin. But that is what God requires of us, whether we like it or not. 
This is heart searching. This is trying to understand God's word and trying to live it. To allow God use his ways for us in our society and the people around us so that we, as his people, can bring honor and glory to his name rather than bring it through the mud and allow people to call us hypocrites. So dealing with leaders and authorities. The second part of the chapter as we move on in verses 8 to 14, Paul addresses his listeners to live lives that effectively represent Christ. When he started writing Total Forgiveness, R.T. Kendall went into a Christian library. To start his research, he went round to search for books. When he had finished that day, a full day's worth of searching in a library He could put in one hand the number of books that were at his disposal on the topic of forgiveness. He was shocked, and he later accounts that he was shocked that the main thing Christianity is built on, forgiveness, was the topic most absent from written works. He believed that this showed a lack of true love for fellow disciples. Paul addresses this idea of love. R.T. Kendall was looking at it in terms of forgiveness, how we interact with each other, how we love each other and live with each other as Christian people. But Paul addresses it by saying that we are to love our fellow men and fellow women. In doing so, we will fulfill the law. Paul even goes as far to say that all the commandments are summed up in one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, we know in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked a similar question. Once again, the Pharisees are there trying to lead him on, trying to trick him and trap him so that he will lose face with the people who are following him. They want to know the greatest commandment, what it is. Jesus answers them by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The Pharisees agree. And in Mark's account of this interchange, we are told, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They couldn't argue with what Jesus was telling them. They could not argue anymore because Jesus had capped everything, that everything centered around love for God and in that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus answered rightly. When love is shown, when true love is shown to one another, to our neighbors, to the people around us, we will be displaying everything that God has for us in life. And in this last uh, passage, Paul states, uh, or starts to list things that Christians are not to do. He states, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Paul is calling disciples. He's calling anyone who is found in Jesus Christ to be self-controlled and different from the world. These people are to be people of light rather than darkness. Paul picks this up from the teaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Light symbolizes the people of God who are willing to show and share life with those around them. The darkness, the contrast, symbolizes people of the evil one who want to hide their deeds because they are deeds that are against God and his people. Folks, we are called to live lives that love and respect each other and to love and respect those in the world around us. We are not called to be isolated or individualistic. We are called to be a community. We are called to live together, sharing the love of God together. We cannot, for the sake of God, abuse and hurt each other with our selfish desires and our selfish ambitions. At the start of the year, last October, at the start of the the church year, as it were, when our activities start up again, The East Belfast Presbytery, the local group of churches that that meet here in the East Belfast area, decided that they would go around each congregation and that they would visit sites and allow congregations to lead the worship of presbytery. And when we came here, we listened to two folks from our congregation who had come to faith by coming to the congregation. And what struck me was how they came to faith. I come from a background where the tent mission And the hard line preaching from the pulpit is the only way of evangelism. But yet these people said, when they they saw God's love displayed in God's people, they knew that their lives had to change. They knew that they were missing something. There are many in our congregation who tell the same story. Whether they have come to faith in this congregation or in others. They saw the love of God in God's people and they wanted it. This is why we must love one another. This is why we must love the world, not the things of the world, but the people of this world around us so that they can see Christ in us and so that they too will want to know Christ as we know him. And how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us a a bit of help towards the end of the chapter. He says that we are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying that we are to put Christ on partly as if putting on a jumper. He says, no, Christ is to envelop you as if putting on a full set of clothes. Our lives are to be all of Christ, all of him. Not putting on one thing and leaving something off, but putting everything of Christ in our lives. There is no option for just part submission to Jesus. Paul's purpose in telling this is so that we do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Throughout this letter, Paul has made it clear that sin can have no place in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Paul abhors sin 
we were there together in those long passages when Paul takes us through what sin is and what it does to us. And Paul understands that it is a stumbling block. It is the thing that, that keeps us from getting closer and closer in our relationship with God. In Romans 3, he clearly tells his readers that no one is righteous, not even one. He recognizes the full fallen state of man. He knows the history of Genesis 3. He knows about indwelling sin that is in each of us. But in verse 24 of Romans 3, he says that even though we all fall short of God's glory, we can be justified freely by his, that is God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And this is where Paul ends chapter 13. He wants Christ to be our all in all, so that we will not give in to sinful desires. We are not to be tempted. In other words, we are not to put ourselves in the position of being tempted. We are to behave decently and to do away with the things that the sinful nature so desires. And we all recognize how tempting sin is and how easily the sinful nature, the desires that we want so quickly envelop our lives. Folks, we finish. And Paul, his challenge rings through the centuries to today as we desire to live lives that are Christ-like. Can we take Paul's challenge Can we clothe ourselves with Christ? Can we allow Christ to envelop us so that our whole lives can be ordered by him rather than ordering by ourselves, by our own desires? Can we remove ourselves from temptation so that we do not fall into the desires of the sinful nature and thereby thereby behave in a way that does not reflect the life that God calls us to. Tonight we have looked at what seem to be two very different passages. The first part of Romans 13 is about authority and submission to leaders. The second part is about how we live in this world by sharing the love of Christ uh, to all the world around us. Our submission is first and foremost to God. God. He is the one who gives us hearts and minds of understanding and discernment. Whenever we think of submitting to authorities, whenever we think of the world around us and how we love that world and the people of that world, God is our first submission because God does his work in us. And as he gives us minds of understanding and discernment, we will obey what God calls us to do to be his representatives on this earth in the affairs of this world. So we take Romans 13 with us. We take it. And tonight, I urge you, as I urge myself, to submit completely to God. Submit completely to him. To allow his son Jesus to envelop each of us so that we will know how to vote in this coming Thursday, so that we will know how to love each other and how to love the neighbors that are around us, so that by Christ enveloping us, we will be his light 
in this dark world. We will not be called hypocrites, but we will be called true followers of Jesus. And as the world looks on, they will want to follow the ways of Christ. May God give us the grace to determine the state of our lives so that we may grow more and more into maturity and demonstrate the love of God that is within us to the world that is around us. Let's pray.